Welcome back to America Speaks. I am so proud today to have Carol Walker of the Wild Horse Freedom Federation on as our guest. Mahatma Gandhi once said, you can tell the character of a nation by how it treats its animals. And I feel this is especially true today during the Trump administration. Our wildlife is clearly at risk. So with that said, I want to introduce all of you to Carol Walker. Carol, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing great, and I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. Well, I just have to say from my heart that what you do is so vital and so powerfully important and so tragic to see that you face what you do on a daily basis. So today we have the opportunity of educating our audience and hopefully inspiring or bring inspiration to our listeners so they can get further involved and we can use our voice to end a lot of the slaughter and the mistreatment of our wild horses in the United States today. So let's begin by asking you to tell us how you started advocating for wild horses. I have always loved animals since I was a little girl, and horses were a favorite. And I began photographing wildlife all over the world at a young age, and I had started my own horse photography business in 2000. And I was photographing horses and horses and their people. And a friend of mine contacted me and said, well, why aren't you photographing wild horses? And I said, wild horses? I don't know anything about wild horses. And two weeks later, someone sent me an invitation on the internet to go visit a wild horse area and photograph wild horses. And I said, well, of course, I'm going. And I went and I was so captivated by these beautiful animals who are so well adapted to the poorest and driest and most rugged of lands. And they were living in families. I was utterly captivated. The first little family that we saw, we drove up and all we could see were little ears sticking up out of the sagebrush. And they were taking a mid-morning nap. And I was to find out later that this was a very typical thing, especially in a family that has youngsters. So we got out of the car and the horses jumped up and the stallion started trotting toward me. And I was really concerned. I didn't know what was going to happen. And I could tell it was a stallion because he was kind of beefy and he had scars on his body, obviously from battles. And he just stopped and looked at me. And then one of his fillies came up and looked like she was grinning at me. And I absolutely lost my heart to this little family. We stayed and watched them for a while. They didn't seem concerned about us at all. And I encountered them several more times over the next few months when I visited this area, which is Adobe Town in Wyoming. I got to know a lot of the wild horse families in that area over the next two years. And then I heard the terrible news that they were going to round up and remove most of these horses in a roundup in August 2005. And I decided I had to be there to see what was going to happen. 
And I couldn't even look at the pictures for about four months after the roundup because it was so upsetting. And these horses I had gotten to know were separated mares from foals, stallions from mares, and shipped off to holding facilities. Some were injured. And it was the most horrible thing. And I decided at that point that I wanted to help the wild horses stay where they belong in our public lands. And I wanted to show people that they weren't starving to death. They weren't dying of thirst and that they were beautiful animals that deserve to live free on our public lands. So that's how I got involved. And I wrote my first book, Wild Hoof Beats, America's Vanishing Wild Horses, and got that published in 2008. And I thought at the time, oh, we'll help save the wild horses, and then it'll take a few years, and then it'll be done. Little did I know, here we are in 2019, facing some of the most dire challenges to the wild horses right now. Absolutely. And before we continue, I want to go back and restate the title of your book. It's uh, Wild Hoof Beats, America's Banishing Wild Horses. And it basically tells the story of the horses living in this area and my encounters with them. And it also goes through the roundup and when what happened after the roundup. And one of the big parts of the book, which I think is very important to tell people, is what they can do to help. Absolutely. And what year was that published? 2008. Can our listeners get that on Amazon? They can, but I'd actually prefer if they go to my wildhoofbeats.com website and purchase it there. And we'll remind our listeners as we talk today how they can reach you, how they can go to your website, how they can buy the book, and how they can help. This is a topic that profoundly upsets me, and I'm sure all our listeners. The wild horses of the United States feel like they are part of the fabric of our land, of our commons, of what we stand for you know, of reflections in years past with art and imagery and photographs. It is shocking to see what they are enduring today. And I feel we have to really be very clear to say, this is going to be a fight. We have to not allow both the roundup, the sterilization, the slaughter in some cases, and the full demise of their species. So in order to understand that, let's get a greater clarity on what the Wild Horse Freedom Foundation is, what do you do, where do you work, and what kind of impact have you made? So first of all, I just want to say that I'm not the director of the Wild Horse Freedom Federation. I'm actually the director of field documentation. So I joined the organization in 2014. R.T. Fitch is the president, and his wife, Terry, and he are the founding members. And I was invited to join in 2014. We are all volunteers. None of us are paid for any of our efforts. And one of the big things that we do is we educate people. We actually have a radio show called Wild Horse and Burrow Radio. We've had over 300 shows online now, and we get the word out about what's going on and how people can help. And I go to roundups when they're in Wyoming and Colorado and Montana and the areas that I spend time in. And I document what's going on and I let people know. I've also been a plaintiff on uh, seven lawsuits now. 
we often find that a lawsuit is really the only way to stop the BLM from doing horrible things to the wild horses. And the lawsuits have been particularly effective. Our Vice President, Deb Coffey, does Freedom of Information Acts. She files them and gets information that the BLM is completely hiding and is completely inaccessible to the public any other way about what is happening to the horses and where they're being moved, you know, changes in policy, everything like that. So we've been working hard to get the word out. So is this a politically motivated issue with the BLM? Do we see a difference between the Obama administration and the Trump administration? Yes. So agriculture is one of the biggest lobbies in Congress. Right. And livestock grazing has huge power in Congress. So we thought that Ken Salazar was terrible, who was the Obama appointee as the head of the Department of the Interior. That was until we got Zinke. Under the Obama administration, there was never any threat that the horses would be shipped directly to slaughter or killed at the holding facilities. Mm -hmm. Under the Trump administration, this is a constant specter looming over us. It's very, very scary. And when you have people in high places who are, you know, Zinke was a proponent of slaughter. I mean, he was trying to get slaughterhouses back in Montana, that when he was in Congress. And now we're going to have a, an interior appointee who comes from energy development. So these are not in keeping with our public lands for the public use. This is private uses that are getting catered to instead of the public use of lands, which is supposed to be mixed use. You know, the BLM always quotes to us, oh, we can't just, you know, manage this for the horses. It should be mixed use. Well, it's not being managed for mixed use. It's being managed for private uses like energy development and for grazing. And they're robbing the wild horses from their natural lands and their natural commons. I don't think it's a surprise to any of us who have followed the current administration's stand on wildlife and natural resources. But what worries me now in terms of what these wild horses are going to be faced with in the next couple of years. So how many wild horses are left, would you estimate? So there are wild horses in 10 Western states. So these are the wild horses I'm talking about. I know there's wild horses back east, but they are managed differently. They're not managed by the Bureau of Land Management and the Department of the Interior. So I'm going to be talking about the wild horses in 10 Western states. So the BLM estimates that there are 81,000 left on our public lands. I think the actual number is closer to 45,000. Oh my gosh, what? The problem is the BLM, when they do a count of the horses in a herd area, is they go up and they have this statistical double count method. So they're not even counting the actual numbers of horses. They're making this estimate. And we have found in some of these areas, the size of the herd will triple in one year which is actually physically impossible unless you have the stallions giving birth. So the numbers that the BLM uses to estimate are crazy. But even if there were 81,000 left, we're talking about livestock in these areas is over 3 million head. So when the BLM says blames all of the range degradation in these lands on wild horses, it's just comically inaccurate. 
And the horses are supposed to be managed as a principal species in the areas where they're found under the 1971 Wild Free Roaming Horse and Borough Act. And they're not. They're pushed to the bottom and they're shoved out. And in a lot of these areas, like Montana, now only has one tiny herd. And they used to have many herds of wild horses, but they were pushed out. Slowly, they got rid of more and more of the horses. And then they said, oh, the number's too small to be genetically viable. So we're just going to zero them out. Well, I don't understand the concept behind that when you look at the fact that there's a figure out there that says 80% of even Trump supporters oppose slaughtering these horses. Yes. So again, it's further propaganda. But what really troubles me is we're not dealing with legislation here. We're dealing with lives. So when we lose these lives, they're gone, right? Yes. And that is what is staggering because this is a species that is being threatened. And this is almost like a namesake to this country, like the buffalo. Yes. So how can we live with ourselves by allowing the BLM to take this rigid, inaccurate, bloodthirsty stand? And untransparent. And untransparent, exactly. Everything's hidden. So of the remaining herds that we have in this country, 70% of them the BLM has assigned a number, which is called an appropriate management level, that is below the number needed to ensure genetic viability of that herd. So we have a geneticist, Dr. Gus Cothran of the University of Kentucky. He's the leading geneticist on wild horses. And he says we need at least 150 to 200 adults in a herd to maintain genetic viability. 70% of our herds are being managed at levels below that. Some herds have an AML of 60, which is just absurd. You know, you're gonna have genetic abnormalities and they're not gonna be able to be viable. It's simply catering mainly to livestock interests. So is there any kind of protection or advisory group that could in fact step in to protect the species of wild horses? I wish that there were. So there is a wild horse and burrow advisory board, but it is a joke. It's mainly people who are pro-slaughter and pro-livestock ranching and everything else. And it doesn't have any power. And it certainly is not going to protect the horses. As far as I'm concerned, having the BLM manage wild horses is like having the fox guard the chicken coop. Right, right. It's completely not in the interests of the wild horses. What we really need is to have an agency managing the horses that is for the horses, that is wanting to maintain the survival of the horses. Instead of spending all of the budget in housing these horses in these horrible holding facilities, how about doing studies on the horses? How about doing programs to enhance the range of the horses? Uh, hauling water, doing birth control, all these things that could be helpful to the land. No, the money is not being spent there. It's being spent rounding them up and housing them in these holding facilities. Well, I really have to say, where are groups like the Sierra Club or the Wildlife Federation, do they have any positive effect in terms of help? Not the Sierra Club, not at all. 
So HSUS, Humane Society of America, actually has been helpful in some cases. Right. SPCA also in some cases, but they have their own agendas, these big groups. They're a lobby group of their own. Exactly. So it's really the wild horse groups that have been doing everything that we can to help save the horses. And You know, people get kind of depressed when I come out and I do a talk about wild horses and they find out all these things. But I say, you know, there are so many more people that know about wild horses than when I began. And if there hadn't all these people that know and care now, we would not have any wild horses left. So it's positive in a lot of ways that there are so many people that care now. And social media has been a huge help in helping to save the wild horses. Well, I think that's actually something that all of us who are listening today need to get on the bandwagon with. Because quite frankly, I myself really didn't have a clue how bad it was. And I'm somebody that's constantly paying attention to the crisis of many species in our country and throughout the world. And so I look at this as crisis level right now, don't you? Absolutely. So let me give you one example of Roundup that's coming up this year. So there's a herd about an hour from Salt Lake City, Utah, called the Anakee Herd. And it's one of the best known, most beloved wild horse herds in the country. People come from all over the world to visit these horses. And the BLM estimates there's about 505 wild horses there now. And they are planning to remove 90% of the herd. 465 horses they're going to remove. Their goal is to leave 121, which is below that number that I mentioned to you for genetic viability. This will be devastating. All these wild horses will lose their families. They'll lose their homes. And all of these people who have come to love and know these horses will not be able to see them again. And it's so needless. There was a group that was forming that was going to do birth control to control the numbers of the herd. And they documented all the horses. They were starting to dart them. And then the BLM comes in and says, no, we're going to take them anyway. You know, people talk about, well, can't you just work with the BLM and do birth control? Well, in a lot of these cases, when people have started to do that, the BLM will come and round up the horses and take them away anyway. It's so frustrating. So who do people write to stop this upcoming roundup? Of course, anybody listening who lives in Utah, you would write to your two senators. It's a federal issue, correct? Yes, and unfortunately in Utah... Chris Stewart is a congressman, and most of the wild herds are in his district, and he is the head horse hater for the country. Oh, my God. This man is on a mission to destroy all the remaining wild horse herds. Wow. Utah, it's a very difficult situation having him as the congressman for that area. But what I say is that people should write their senators, write, call, email, set up meetings with your senators and representatives. That is the best way that you can protect these horses. Is there any way we could ask any of the other congressional members to bring this up as a separate issue on the floor of Congress? Certainly, absolutely. Just a few days ago, 
we actually had some good news happen for wild horses, and it was due to people writing and calling and being in contact with their senators and representatives. There was a policy that was instated last year where people could go and buy up to 24 horses a day with no limitation, no waiting period, $10 a head. And this was opening the door to mass slaughter. And the BLM actually finally revoked this. And they are back to the policy now where uh, people can only purchase up to four horses over a six-month period unless they get special permission. So they actually did stop that. And it was due to the outcry of the public on this issue. Well, we need to be loud and we need to be far more informed. Why does the BLM use helicopters to round up the horses? That has clearly got to be traumatic for them. Yes. So um, the original way that they started in 1969 rounding up wild horses was on horseback. And what I was told by the Coutures, they are a family and they do most of the helicopter roundups. They said that it was actually really hard on the horses being chased and the chasers on horseback. They said the helicopter was more humane. I think that may be the case, but there are also alternatives to helicopters. When you think about a helicopter and a horse, you're basically scaring the animal to death. You're scaring them into running for their lives. That's how you're managing them. And you're driving them into a trap. And the possibility for injury is horrible. And I've seen injuries and deaths at these roundups. Couture's right now are using two helicopters, which is even more terrifying, but more efficient and fast. It's very, very fast. I couldn't believe the last roundup I attended in 2017, how quickly they've removed hundreds of horses using the helicopter methods. Yes, there are alternatives. You can use what's called bait trapping. You set up a trap near a water hole and you put goodies in it, you know, like uh, things that horses like to eat, hay, salt licks, any sort of things like that. And when the horses go in, you remotely close the door and then you take out the horses that you want. So if this is done right, it can be more humane. But it can also be done cruelly and give injuries to the horses if it isn't done right. You know, I have to just say in the middle of all of this, I'm flabbergasted. Even 500 horses, okay, it's a lot of animals in one spot. And I sound naive saying this. But for those of us who care about wildlife and look at how much land exists, I'm astonished. It's 500,000 acres. So, I mean, it's a huge area. So let's talk about this state by state, because I want to identify the states that are the more villainous. And I want to identify who represents these constituents. When you look at wild horses in the 10 Western states, the state that has the most wild horses and is probably the most vicious toward the wild horses would be Nevada. Wow. Yeah. Most of the wild horses live in Nevada. And then the second most would be Wyoming. And then the rest of the states go down from there. Here in Colorado, we only have about a thousand horses in the whole state. That's shocking. 
in all of Colorado, and it's such a progressive state or leaning in that direction. Why is that? Well, and in Colorado, one of our herds is actually over AML by about 700, and they are probably going to do a roundup this year, the Sandwash herd. A lot of the herds have been pushed out of their areas in Colorado, just like in Montana. And is there any way to bring any of these herds back to their original habitat? So this is my answer when the BLM says to me, well, what would you do with these horses? With attitude, of course, they're asking me this. What would you do with these horses in the holding facilities? I said, I would return them to the 22 million acres that has been taken away from wild horses in our country. So there's 22 million acres that wild horses no longer roam on. And the horses that are in holding facilities, the stallions are gelded. So you could turn them out in these former herd areas and let them live out their lives. And it would be a much cheaper and much more humane way for these horses to live. Absolutely. What are the chances with public pressure that that would ever happen? Well, it would only be public pressure that would make that happen. I remember the Wild Horse and Burrow Advisory Board, they set up a committee to study that, and the committee folded after a year, and they didn't really ever do anything about it. This isn't something that the BLM wants to do, and it isn't something that the the livestock grazers want to happen, because now they have the land without the horses on it. That's what they want to do with all of the land. And is that land being used for agro purposes or residential or industrial building? Well, yes. So, yes, it's other uses, mostly livestock grazing. Is there any way to identify a day in the year where we could ask we the people to begin a campaign to stand up for the return of these horses? Is there any kind of a wild horse holiday or a wild horse commemoration day or some kind of way to identify a unified effort that could actually take this on with large public pressure? Because to me, I don't think the public has a clue. Well, it is very difficult right now. We actually, uh, Wild Horse Freedom Federation, we hired a PR firm along with equine advocates this last year and we were trying to get you know more stories in the news about wild horses. Um, getting more people aware of what was going on and competing with everything else that's going on is really tough right now. But you can also see it as uh, part of the whole issue that's happening with our public lands. So I think that it's a very timely thing. You know, we are losing our public lands and we are losing uh, habitat for wildlife and we need to stop it because once it's gone, it's gone. And I certainly don't want to be this person that has pictures of horses that are gone forever. And it's like in a history museum. I want to see these horses be able to continue to live out their lives in the wild. And the other thing about the herds is many of them are very specific Um, there are traits of certain herds that are different from other herds. So to wipe out a herd is to lose that genetic footprint completely. So you can't just say, well, there's still horses out there, as if one is just like another. 
Do we have an opportunity in a state like Nevada to lobby or approach both congressional representatives and senators in Nevada because there is so much open land there? Well, no, you want to keep the horses where they are. It's not a matter of moving them to different open land. The best way that you can have any sort of impact is to develop a relationship with your senators and congressmen and tell them how you feel about the wild horses. And they get to know you and they get to know the issue. And that's going to be the most effective way to do anything about this right now. I don't think that petitions do anything. I actually don't think much of rallies. But I really think that having a conversation with your senator and your senator's office and your representative and your representative's office, that can make a difference. I think that's got to be our first line of defense here. And I'm asking all of my listeners to really get onto Twitter, get onto Facebook, get online and get on the phone because this issue really needs you and it has been underreported and we are highlighting it today on America Speaks. And Carol, we're gonna continue to bring this back to the public's perception. So how can people reach you, where they can find your website, where they can find your blog, where and who they can write to once again? It's wildhoofbeats.com, W-I-L-D-H-O-O-F, B-E-A-T-S dot com. And where would they find your blog? On the website. And then wildhorsefreedomfederation.org. We chose to break up our interview with Carol Walker into two episodes so you can truly digest the threat that our wild horses face in the United States today. So we are inviting you all to come back next week for part two. And once again, I want to urge all of you to make your voice heard. Clearly, the plight of wild horses today in the United States is astounding and tragic. We, the people, cannot sit idly by and allow the disappearance of these majestic horses. The Bureau of Land Management is now only required to give two weeks' notice to the public before a roundup begins. It used to be 30 days. I'm reaching out to all of you listening today. Please contact your congressperson. Get on the phone, email, snail mail. Your voice is needed here to stand in the way of destroying the Anaqui herd in Utah and the expected roundup that is about to occur in Nevada. This is our chance to save lives here. I want to invite everyone to America Speaks podcast with Tish Lampert on Apple Podcasts. And also, please go to our website at www.tishlampert.org for news of my forthcoming book. And once again, I want to thank James Koblenz and Kim Langbacker, without whom this episode would not be possible. And remember... America Speaks believes every one of us has a story. And a voice. (laughs) 